If I were to survey people in the church and ask them who their favorite New Testament character is, apart from Jesus, of course, my guess is that a large number of people, if not the majority, would say that they love the Apostle Peter. I believe the reason for this is because Peter seems to demonstrate the heart, the true heart, of a person who follows Christ. Peter is bold, courageous, excitable, curious. He's also faithless and cowardly sometimes and self-serving. In other words, Peter is human, which is why we can identify with him. And he's going to be our focus of study today. Now, to remind ourselves of where we are, we have been working through and beginning to work through John chapter 10, and uh, excuse me, not John, Matthew's gospel. Uh, sometimes I click back to old studies. Isn't that weird? It's like time travel. Uh, Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 10. And last week we talked about the commissioning of all these 12. And so what I want to do for the next couple of weeks, we're not going to go 12 weeks into this, but I do want to spend a couple messages talking about who these disciples, who these apostles were. I think it's going to help us to frame our minds whenever we encounter them as we move through Matthew's gospel uh, to see who these people are and really put flesh and bone uh, on the, the person here. The Lord Jesus Christ, he's called these 12 as disciples and set them apart for the purpose of preaching the good news of the kingdom to the people of Israel. Matthew records a list of these 12 men, and at the top of that list is Simon Peter. We pick it back up in Matthew 10. In a few weeks, we're going to talk about that. But again, it is helpful, I think, to understand who these guys are. Now, there are seven men in the New Testament, or in the Gospels, I should say, that are called Simon. So seven Simons in the Gospels. Two of them are even in Jesus' 12. But to distinguish, to distinguish them apart, the Lord gives Simon another name, Peter. We first encounter Simon Peter in John 1.41, where his brother Andrew introduces him to Jesus. Simon and Andrew are brothers, and they're fishermen from the town of Bethsaida in the northern region of Israel known as Galilee. He soon relocates his business to the village of Capernaum, which is on the Sea of Galilee, in order to be closer to where Jesus is ministering. We know that Peter is married. He has a wife. We know that because of Matthew chapter 8, his mother-in-law is bedridden with sickness, and Jesus is the one who comes and heals her. But the first time that we actually encounter Simon is when he meets Jesus in John 1, and he tells him, he says, You are Simon, son of John, but you shall be called Cephas. Cephas is the Aramaic word for rock or stone. The Greek word that's used is Petros, which is where we get the name Peter. One commentator has observed that whenever Simon is seen doing something good, um, Jesus refers to him as Peter. But whenever he's doing something according to his own nature, Jesus will then go and call him Simon. In many ways, it was Jesus' subtle way of uh, correcting him and encouraging him, depending on which name he used. But Peter's real journey begins when he encounters Jesus on the shores of the lake of Gennesaret. So if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 in your Bible. Now we're going to bounce around a little bit here today, try to keep our fingers nimble, 
And I tried to navigate with how to do this because we're covering a whole person's life in the, the scope of what Scripture says. And so some passages we'll turn to ourselves as a church. Other passages I'll simply read, read them for you. I don't want to confuse us too much by bouncing around so much. But the account here in Luke 5 also appears in Matthew, but it's only in part. Matthew four eighteen through 22 records this calling of Simon Peter as well as Andrew and as well as James and John. But we really see the further account in Luke's Gospel. So Luke chapter 5, you can look at this with me, the first 11 verses. Now it happened while the crowd was pressing around him, talking about Jesus, listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. He saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land, and he sat down and began to teach the people from the boat. When he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep of the water and let your nets down for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you shall be catching men. But when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And so here, even though we've already bumped into Peter chronologically from John 1, when Jesus meets him and the first time he meets him, he changes his name. You have to love that about the Lord. He gives him this new name. That's really chronologically the first time we see Peter. But now, this is really the first time we see Peter as a person. We, we hear from him. We see what he's saying and how he interacts with the Lord. In one breath, we see Peter's faithlessness and his skepticism and his fear. You know, we've already done this, Lord. Don't make us do this again. I'm exhausted. I've been trying to catch fish all night. Nothing has happened. And so we do see the humanness of Peter here. But we also see his earnestness. And even later on in the narrative, his willingness to leave everything behind to follow Jesus. And so really, this is the kernel of who Peter is right at the very first account. And for the next couple years, he follows closely behind Jesus as a friend and also as a disciple. Peter, along with James and John, formed the inner circle of Jesus' discipling ministry. Even though Jesus had the twelve that he spent a lot of time with, he had the seventy which he later sent out, he had the multitudes around him, you can see a pattern of ministry where he has uh, one way he deals with the crowds, another way he deals with the disciples, an even further way of how he deals with the twelve, and then very closely he deals with these inner, inner three uh, men. He spent most of the time with these men. He gave them opportunities to learn and to witness things that no one else had seen. Peter was often the first one to speak and the first one to act. And sometimes that was good and sometimes that was not so good. In Matthew 14, we read about the disciples crossing the sea in a boat. And when they behold the Lord Jesus crossing along on the tops of the water, both Matthew, Mark, and John all record their terror and their amazement. But Matthew records that Peter 
calls out to him and says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. So this is the point when Peter is going to walk across the tops of the water. Now we know, if we do the the math here, Peter's wife was not in the boat with him. How do we know? Because if Peter's wife was in the boat with him, she would have said, there's no way you're going to walk across the top of that water. Get back in the boat. But his wife was most likely not with him. But regardless, he takes this bold and arguably foolish, humanly speaking, foolish move. You've got to think that Andrew is going, Peter, I don't think that's a good idea. But Peter does it anyway. He steps out in, in boldness and fearlessness. He sees the Lord and he's, he's compelled and he's excited. And the Bible says he gets out of the boat and he walks across the tops of the water. But then old Simon shows up and he begins to doubt and he begins to be afraid. And when that happens, he begins to sink. And Jesus reaches out to him and he rescues him. And he says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter, my friends, is still learning Matthew 16 stands out as an early high watermark, really, in the life and ministry and testimony of Peter. Jesus is with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, and they stop along the way and they're talking together. And the text says in in Matthew 16, now Jesus came to the districts of Caesarea Philippi. He was asking the disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? And they gave him various answers. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, some say Jeremiah or the prophets. They're trying to figure out who he is. Then he says to them, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This is probably the most power-packed question in the Gospels. Who do you think that I am? And wouldn't you know, Simon Peter is the one who steps out and answers the question. And he says in verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you have to know all the disciples for just a second held their breath. Is this really true? Or is Peter just being Peter again? No. Jesus responds to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Then he says, I say you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. So Peter is giving this dynamic profession of faith, and really he's speaking for the group. He's speaking for for the men who are sitting there. He's telling Jesus and affirming to Jesus before God himself that Jesus is the Son of the living God. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah that they've been waiting for. Despite all of his personal struggles with faithlessness, what gives some scholars... Uh, cause is to, to, they actually name this the Great Confession. We know the Great Commission, right? This is oftentimes called the Great Confession. And Peter is the one who gives this confession. Of course, it is only moments later, however. The Peter who was blessed just a few minutes ago, Jesus now issues a stern rebuke because Jesus tells him more. He, he tells the disciples what he's going to do. In verse 21, from the time Jesus began to show the disciples he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and he must be killed and raised up on the third day. He's telling them the gospel ahead of time. He's telling them what he's going to go and do. The very thing that you and I as Christian believers, the thing we hold to, the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Christ... That's what he's telling them here. And Peter, in verse 22, takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Don't say that, Lord. 
What, why are you telling these guys that you're going to go and die? Why would you say something? We're, we're here to, this is supposed to be a good thing, right? He says to him, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Now, Jesus is looking really through Peter and he sees Satan standing right behind him. He's speaking to, to, uh, to Satan. But you have to understand this rebuke is coming at Peter. Peter is the one who is allowing himself to believe these lies and to say things that aren't true and to thwart, try to thwart the purposes of God. So Peter goes from this very high, high, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for you're calling me the Christ, to five seconds later, get behind me, Satan. Stark contrast. Peter is still learning. Of course, Peter's lapse here is only temporary. In terms of his experience with Jesus, it hits another high in Matthew 17, when he and James and John, they're taken up into the mountain and they behold the transfiguration where Jesus goes up and the Bible says he's transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his garments become white as light. And at this marvelous sight, these men, these three men, they, they worship. Now, there's a note to be made. They, at first, they make a mistake and they worship wrongly and the Lord rebukes them for that, but that's soon corrected. In fact, near the end of his life, Peter really forgetting the correction and remembering the glory at the marvelous experience of seeing the glorious revelation of Christ. He writes this is 2 Peter chapter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty, he says. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance was made from Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. Even at the end of his life, before his death, he was still relishing this cherished memory, this excitement, this glory, this majesty that he beheld, and even hearing the voice of God bellowing from heaven into his ears and into his heart. The event was so distinctly resonating with him that his whole life, Even the next phrase, he's clear to assert that even the amazing experiences, the witnessing of the transfiguration, still does not trump the sureness and the steadfastness of the written Word of God. So that's the context he's saying, look, even though we saw the glory, we still uphold the Word of God as supreme. But yet, my friends, this memory for him was still very sweet. But day by day, Peter's knowledge, his faith, his courage was continuing to grow. Peter spent three years personally with Jesus. Peter is faithfully, even though he's flawed, committed to abiding with Christ as his friend. He sees him as rabbi. He sees him as his master. He sees him as his savior. However, there is an hour of great trial coming. Turn with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John We're going to be working toward the end of the gospel. I'm going to pick it up in chapter 13. We're going to hit a couple points along these chapters, and you're going to see the scope of this. John 13 is the Last Supper. Jesus is telling the disciples that he's about to leave them. Remember, he warns them earlier, 
He's going to go and be killed and die, and he's going to rise the third day. So he's already warned them about this happening, but now he's re- he rehashes it again. He's about to go and give his life. Now, having learned his lesson, Peter doesn't say, you're not going to go away, are you? Instead, he says, Lord, where are you going? See how he's refined a little bit? He doesn't even try to put his will on the Lord's And Jesus answers and says, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. Peter doesn't want to hear this. He replies, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter wants to be with the Lord and Jesus responds, will you? Will you lay down your life for me? This question must have hurt. But nothing would have hurt more than the very next statement. Truly, truly I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Matthew 26.35 records Peter's stunned reply. This is a synoptic. This is the similar view. Peter, after Jesus says this to him, you're going to deny me three times, we know from Matthew that Peter says, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. He's firing back because He can't hear this. Of course I'm not going to deny you. I love you. I believe that you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the one we've been waiting for. I walked across the water to you. I will not, even if I have to die, I will not deny you. And then John 18, Jesus is arrested. Flip into your Bibles. John 18, He's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. However, Peter, or excuse me, Jesus' words are fresh in His mind. And what does Peter do? He springs into action in John 18.10 and he attacks one of the arresting soldiers. He pulls out his dagger, his knife, his sword and he tries to hit him. He actually tries to cut off his head and the soldier ducks and he gets his ear. He cuts his ear off. Perhaps he's really trying to die with Christ and prove his faithfulness after all. But Christ cares more for the virtuous than for the valiant. After telling Peter, put your sword away. He says, all who live by the sword will die by the sword. Peter, have you learned nothing? Put your sword away. And then we read from the Gospel accounts that Jesus actually heals the soldier's ear. He puts it back on and heals the soldier, which possibly is what buys Peter some grace, maybe. But regardless, after that point, Jesus is led away. And then we read about Peter's failure. I'm in John 18 now. Look at verse 15. Jesus has already been led away. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. We believe that's John. Now the disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold and they were warming themselves, and Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. Skip down to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and he said, I'm not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter had cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? I saw you. 
I saw you take a swing at one of the soldiers. You were right there. How could I forget? Verse 27, Peter then denied it again. And immediately, a rooster crowed. Friends, I can't imagine that feeling. With that last statement, Peter betrays the Lord and Jesus' words are confirmed. Peter swore up and down, I, I will I die with you. I'm not going to deny you. And yet within a matter of hours, he's already done it. How could this happen? Only hours before, he was ready to lay down his life for the Lord. And now in shame and in cowardice, he's, he denies even having known him. I don't even know the man. Matthew records that grief overtakes him and it says he went away and wept bitterly. Bitterly. I suspect that all Christians can identify with this on some level. You're running well. You're living for God. You're doing okay. You're obeying Christ. Your spiritual disciplines are good. You're doing all right. And then in the blink of an eye, you stumble and you fall off the path and it's like you never even knew Him. This is a common experience for so many believers. And yes, I'll tell you, when I preach, I'm preaching for holiness. I'm preaching to encourage you and to exhort you and and spur you on toward godliness. That's the exhortation. That's what the Bible does. But at the same time, Scripture also knows, and I'm aware, and so are you, that we do stumble and fall. That's why John says, if anyone does sin, i.e., when we do sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for all of our sins. So yes, there are times when we fall off. However, true Christians don't see this as an excuse for stumbling. Rather, we seek forgiveness from the Lord. In fact, Peter writes about this. I'm just going to read this to you. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 17, he says this that even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. Beloved, even when people, they attack you, sometimes it's your flesh, sometimes it's the devil, but there are times when people will, will ask you about your faith or attack you or pressure you, and the tendency is to cave. Peter says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And he says, keep a good conscience. Keep a good conscience so that in the thing which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Now you have to think that Peter had this instance in the back of his mind. Because Peter had an opportunity to profess his love and his faith in Christ and he didn't do it. And so he spends the rest of his life, this is written 30 years later, he spends the rest of his life in his mind preparing his heart. Be ready, my friends, to give an answer for the hope that you have within you. Peter's saying, don't don't let what happened to me happen to you. Be ready, prepare yourself. Be firm in your faith. He came to see the value of building up your defense against stumbling and preparing your heart to testify to Christ even if it costs you everything. And the days are increasing, my friends, when professing your love for Christ and your love for His bride is costing us and costs many. You might ask the question, how is it that Peter could go from denying Christ and running away to professing Christ and enduring hardship? Why such a stark contrast? 
Well, the answer is the grace and forgiveness of Christ. I want you to turn over to John chapter 21. John 21. The story of the Lord Jesus and His friend Peter is so inspiring and so encouraging, so marvelous. John 21, it's the same day Jesus, uh, excuse me, Peter denies Jesus. The Lord is killed. He's put on the cross. He's buried. And then He rises the third day. We know that after the resurrection, Jesus appears to Peter as well as to the other disciples. Paul later tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Jesus appears to more than 500 brethren at one time. But in John 21, Peter still hasn't fully been restored. Honestly, I, I can't imagine how that's going to happen, at least in, from Peter's perspective. How, how does Peter go back to the Lord and say, what do you say? What do you even say? This is why I believe that Christ is the one who takes the initiative. John 21, look at verse 12. Now Jesus has come back and He's going to have breakfast with the disciples again. This is after, far after the resurrection. Jesus says to the disciples, come and have breakfast with me. None of the disciples ventured to question, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. Now this is the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus came, excuse me, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Oh, I love this, my friends, I love this. Three times Peter denied the Lord. He denied even knowing the Lord. And three times Jesus gave him the opportunity to declare his love for Christ again. So marvelous, so gracious, so wonderful. However, Peter is restored. I love this. He's restored, and then he's called into pastoral ministry. Usually there's some years in between. No, right on the spot. I know you love me, Peter, so take care of my lambs. Shepherd my sheep. Tend my flock. He knows. He knows that He loves Him. See, Jesus doesn't just restore Peter. He also bestows on him the great responsibility of being a shepherd. This account really must have been a a moment of joy and relief to find forgiveness in the Lord. Peter, I mean, again, I'm putting myself in his place. I, I don't know what I would even say. Jesus does. In this moment, really, put steel into his spine. If Christ can walk on water, then I can walk on water. That was Peter's rationale a few years before. And now, if Christ can conquer death and call me into ministry, I'm going to minister. And minister, my friends, he does. He does. After the ascension of Christ, Peter and the other 
disciples are in Jerusalem with the celebration of Pentecost. Acts 2, there's about 120 followers of Christ who are gathered together in prayer. Suddenly the Holy Spirit bursts into the room, falls upon them. They begin to speak in tongues and languages. Immediately they begin to rush out into the streets and they begin to minister the gospel. They're preaching to people in the streets. And the onlookers, many of them, think that they're, they're drunk and they've, they've had too much wine and they're just talking gibberish. But the church was preaching the gospel we record in 16 different languages at that time. Sort of a reverse Tower of Babel experience. Whereas before, God was confusing language. Now He's opening it up again for them to hear the gospel. And let me ask you, who is it that seizes the moment and stands up to preach the gospel for them to hear? You guessed it, Peter. Peter seizes it and he grabs onto the opportunity. And the second half of Acts chapter 2 records his Pentecost sermon, a marvelous sermon. And he ends this sermon with this, Acts 2.37. It says, when, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord our God call, will call to Himself. And with many other words, He solemnly testified. I love this. With many other words, He solemnly testified. He's not running away. He's not denying. He's standing up amidst a, a whole crowd of people. And He's testifying. And kept exhorting them and saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Verse 41, so then those who received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. These people heard the gospel from the mouth of Peter, and they believed, they repented of their sins, and they believed, and God did amazing things in that moment, and he uses his servant Peter to do it. And from that point, Peter and the other apostles, they begin boldly proclaiming the gospel everywhere they go, throughout the streets of Jerusalem, everywhere. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, they're arrested and they're jailed together. The thing that, that, uh, that Peter was afraid of before, now he sees it. He's arrested. He's brought in. The following day, they're brought before the Sanhedrin, which is the religious leaders, the Jewish authorities. The same leaders who persecuted and killed Jesus. The same leaders of whom Peter was terrified. But look at how he responds. I'm in Acts 4 now. 4, 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander. This is a different John, by the way. And all who were of the high priestly descent. When they placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Look at this, verse 8. I love this. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter stands up. He's not denying anything anymore. He said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial for the benefit done to a sick man, as how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which became the chief cornerstone. 
And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Far from denying Christ, far from running away in fear, Peter here is bold, he's passionate, he's spirit-filled. And how does the Sanhedrin respond? Look at verse 13. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed. I love this. And they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Can you imagine that? I mean, think about that phrase for a second. A person looks at you and their conclusion is, you must have been with Jesus. The affect of what you're doing and your testimony and your, your confidence in Christ. Verse 14, And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. They had nothing to say. Peter and John are then beaten, and the Sanhedrin commands them not to preach anymore. And what do they do? They set the city on fire with their preaching. They go right back out, and they, begin to, they actually rejoice that they've been persecuted. They rejoice that they have the opportunity to suffer the same shame that Christ received from these people. They rejoiced in it. And from there, we follow Peter around as he ministers in Jerusalem. And at this point, he's even regarded by many as a pillar of the early church. He preaches to the Jews. And the Lord reveals to him that he is no longer to regard the Gentiles as unclean. And so then he goes and he begins to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And in Acts 15, Peter appears at the Jerusalem council to help the church leaders navigate what is required of Gentiles who are coming to faith. Are they going to be required to keep the ceremonial law of circumcision and dietary restrictions in the Sabbath? Is that what we're going to require of non-Jewish people of non-Jewish descent? And the council maintains the ruling that they are not to observe the Mosaic law in their practices. After all, they've come to Christ by faith. By faith, the same way that Abraham did. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Same faith. The only encouragements pertained to issues of conscience and overt sin. So they tell them, don't eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Why? Because you used to do that when you were a pagan. So don't defile your conscience. Don't do that, because that's not going to help you. And then they say, keep away from fornication, because that's immorality. So don't do that. And to this decree, Peter gives his approval. He's on the same team. He testifies to the truth of the gospel. But then, something happens. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. Years earlier, around the mid-30s, the Pharisee named Saul, a.k.a. who we know to be Paul, becomes a Christian, and he eventually goes and meets with Peter for about two weeks. He goes and stays with him for a little bit. If you read the, the book of Acts, you see that there is, the church didn't really know what to do with Paul because in one breath he's persecuting and killing Christians and bringing them off to prison. Then he gets converted and then he goes and tries to minister to the same people and they don't really know what to do with him. So he goes away. They, the, the apostles say, Peter, uh, Paul, it's better if you just kind of go away for a while and he actually leaves and they kind of get, they kinda, I don't want to say they get rid of him, but they, they put him somewhere to grow a little bit before he comes back. But Paul regarded Peter as a pillar. He respected him. But on occasion of Peter's trip to Antioch to visit the church there, these two men, these two pillars of the faith, they come to blows. Look at Galatians chapter 2. This is Paul writing this letter. Paul says this, But when Cephas, that's Peter by the way, 
came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat meat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas, my friend, my ministry partner, Barnabas, even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, then how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is just, excuse me, not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. He takes a stand for the gospel against Peter, one of the pillars in the church. Again, Peter is called Cephas. He comes to Antioch. I'm, re- I'm rephrasing here. He sees the Gentiles, that they're not observing the law. Now, again, a couple months before, he was fine with that. And all the council was fine with that. But now the other Jewish leaders have come around. The circumcision party, the, the, the Pharisees, really, who are claiming now to be Christians, but the law keepers are there, and they're saying, we've noticed that these, these Gentiles, you're not having them keep the Sabbath, huh? You're not having them circumcise their, their sons? They're, they're eating meat, they're eating pork, they're eating the things they're not supposed to be eating. We're, we're not doing that. Peter, you're a Jew. Why, don't you, why aren't you making these people do what we're supposed to be doing? And Peter begets, he gets nervous about this. And he falls back. Simon's back. Even though he understood the gospel, even though he'd been restored by Christ, even though he was an influential leader, a pillar in the church, he stumbled back in fear of man. He fell backwards. And it was the spiritually younger Paul who was forced to correct him publicly. We're not Christians because we keep the laws and do good deeds, Paul is asserting. We're Christians because God redeems us through Christ and we trust in Him by faith. We're declared righteous by God. We're justified in His sight. It's a legal act of God, a declaration of God that we're regarded righteous even though we're not. And God the Father credits us with the righteousness of Christ, a righteousness that we don't deserve, and credits Christ with our total sinfulness, sinfulness He doesn't deserve and He hasn't earned. And on the cross, he dies with our robe of sinfulness wrapped around him. And upon resurrection, when we're presented before the Father, the Father regards us wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. It's called the great exchange. This is the doctrine of justification. It's It's the foundation stone of the gospel, really. We're justified by faith in Christ apart from works of the law. Peter knew this. Peter preached this. But he lost his nerve and he fell backwards. Even at this point in his life. Again, how could Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, how could he witness the resurrection and the glory 
He's a spirit-empowered preacher. He's a pillar of the church. How could he backslide? Because he's human. And he's sinful. And he's flawed. And he's not yet glorified. And guess what? Same as us. If Peter is going to struggle in the faith at times, we probably are too, aren't we? See, we're saved by God's grace through faith. And while we're still here in this body, we're going to wage war against the old nature. Peter spent his whole life waging war against Simon every day of his life until he died. And you and I do the same thing. I wage war daily against the old Nate. I don't like the old Nate. He doesn't like me. And I would assume the same thing for you. And we're going to wage war until Christ calls us home. But what was his testimony? How did he see his life in light of all of this? He writes about it in 1 Peter chapter 1. I want you to listen to this. Just listen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Peter must have been smiling when he wrote those words. Because he's thinking, I, I love Him too. Even though you haven't seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining for the, as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Peter understood how this works. He knows how this is. He knew that his life wasn't wrapped up in his own personal merits. He knew he was going to struggle. He knew he was going to endure trials. Sometimes the trials come because of outside influence. Sometimes the trials come because of his old, his old nature, his old Simon. But he understood. And he even remembered back to the first time he encountered the glory of Christ. Remember, he says, depart from me, Lord. Depart from me, I am a sinful man. Well, Peter still knew he was a sinner. He knew the whole time of his life. He knew it. And he was reminded of it. Yet Peter desired to draw near to the Lord and he was desiring to add to his faith moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. Peter stood firm in the grace of God. That was his... His credo. As for his legacy, not only do we have his story in the Gospels and in Acts, but we also have two letters that were penned by Peter. Both are written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What is known as the first epistle of Peter was written in the early 60s to the believers who were scattered in the dispersion. And the theme of First Peter is really suffering well in the true grace of God knowing how to suffer well in the grace of God. This letter includes exhortations for holiness and submission, as well as encouragements for those who suffer for Christ. Peter's second epistle was written 
at the end of his life, right around AD 66, it's a little bit shorter, 2 Peter addresses the issue of genuine faith over and against the vileness of false teachers. He concludes by encouraging believers to be faithful, even as the day of the Lord draws near. We have one more key document which owes much of its influence to Peter. Two of the apostles, Matthew and John, wrote gospel accounts of the life of Jesus Christ, but Peter never does. The so-called gospel of Peter, written in the second century, is it's nothing just a, it's just garbage actually. It's not even a, a gospel letter. It wasn't written by Peter or anybody who actually knows Christ. It's a, it's a what's called a Gnostic gospel. It's a, a farce. But the real gospel of Peter really comes through the pen of a disciple named Mark. Mark, Mark ministered alongside Peter. Not being an apostle himself, Mark really has no authority to be writing the gospel. So we tend to believe that the gospel of Mark was composed under the apostolic authority of the apostle Peter. It's terse and action-packed, and it's befitting of our impetuous brother Peter. According to church tradition, Peter and his wife were martyred in Rome somewhere around 66 to 68 A.D. At the end of John's Gospel, there's a conversion story where John records this. Jesus tells Peter, When you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished, but you'll grow old and when you grow old, you'll stretch, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. In fulfillment of those words by Jesus, tradition tells us that both Peter and his wife were crucified. However, Peter pleaded with his executioner, terrified, excuse me, testifying that he was not worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. And so Peter asked that they would crucify him upside down, which is what they did. And so both Peter and his wife were turned upside down and crucified for the faith. And while he was not faultless, by God's grace, he was faithful to the end. It was this man who Jesus called, along with the other eleven, to go before us and preach the gospel. I want to close this morning with some parting words from our friend Peter. From 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter ends his epistle by saying this, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so ends the parting words of our dear brother, Peter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful to You. We're grateful not because you give us heroes and celebrities of the faith. We're not thankful for Peter because of the allure of the man himself. 
No, as a church, we love this man because we understand that he knew you. He was faithful to you. He went before us. He's a pillar. He's a foundation stone that you built on along with the other apostles and prophets. Father, you use this man who is flawed like us to proclaim a great and awesome Christ. And so, Father, we join our dear brother in proclaiming and testifying the same gospel. We believe in you. We trust you. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We believe that he gave his life on the cross, was buried and rose again the third day. We believe that he ascended into heaven and sits there at your right hand. And we believe the Bible teaches that all have sinned and fall short of your glory. And the wages of that sin is death. But the gift that we receive by grace is eternal life. That all who would repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ would have forgiveness and eternal life. Father, that is our testimony. That's our hope. And we know that that was the testimony and the hope of our dear brother. And so, Father, we thank you for his witness. We thank you for giving us a model and an example to look to. But ultimately, we know that we look preeminently to Christ, who is the captain of our salvation. And we thank you, Lord, that you use flawed people like James and John and Peter. You use flawed people like all of us to accomplish a mighty work. Help us, Lord, to stand fast in our faith, not to deny you, but to run hard after you, knowing that there is grace for us, there is hope, and there is a future. I thank you for your work that you've done on our behalf. We love you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.